Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Whether born in your house or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision. It's what you all woke up thinking about this morning, right? For nearly 2,000 years, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with His people. Ladies, you were off the hook. But fellas... If you wanted to be in relationship with God from Abraham for the following 2,000 years, you would have had to undergo a little bit of surgery. Okay? This is, I, I want to really emphasize how important circumcision was in God's covenant with his people. It was the distinguishing characteristic of what it meant to be in covenant with God. From Abraham, the section we just read, all the way down to Moses, to David, to Jesus, to Peter and Paul, every male in the Jewish line would have been circumcised. Circumcision was so vital to what it meant to be Jewish that the Jews were actually nicknamed the circumcision. Right? It was so central to who they were that they were actually called the circumcision. You could refer to the Jews as the circumcision. Even though it only applied to the males, the whole body of Jews was referred to as the circumcision. That's how central this covenant marker was in the people of God for over 2,000 years. It predated even the dietary laws. The last couple of weeks we looked at Peter and the vision God gave him about the animals coming down and how important the dietary laws were to the Jews. Uh, Circumcision was even more important than that. As a matter of fact, I think the reason that God chose uh, animals instead of a vision of circumcision for Peter is because nothing would have changed Peter's mind in that moment about the necessity of being circumcised if you wanted to be in relationship with God. To refuse to be circumcised was to be cut off, pun intended, from relationship with God. To refuse to be circumcised was to be cut off from relationship with God. In terms of religious practice, I really want to nail this, nothing was more important than circumcision in the life of the people of God for more than 2,000 years, from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. So, with, with this in mind, with the importance of circumcision in mind, I want to fast forward about 2,000 years from the passage we started with to Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Acts chapter 15. I'll give you a little bit of background. If not, we'll put the, uh, the text up here on the screen. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, the vision that God gave Peter and how Peter 
was sent to Cornelius, who was a Gentile Roman centurion, and how Peter preached the gospel to these Gentiles who for thousands of years had been considered unwashed outsiders. Now all of a sudden, the gospel was preached to them and the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles just as it had upon the Jews. And after that, in uh, Acts chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see Paul and Barnabas in their missions across the Mediterranean basin were going around and they were speaking to the Gentiles and they were preaching the gospel to these non-Jews and, and they, were not, they were not requiring the Jews, the, I'm sorry, they were not requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised. This was a really big deal and this was, as we're going to see, this led to a major fight within the early church. So Acts chapter 15, Luke begins the story this way. He says, Certain people came down from from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Now I want to put this in perspective for you. Here's a map. Up here is Antioch. Down here is Jerusalem in Judea. That's a 300-mile journey. 300 miles from Jerusalem up to the city of Antioch. Traveling as they did on foot in those days, that would have taken a full two weeks to make that journey. About 15 days to travel from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And these believers from Jerusalem traveled up to to Antioch to preach one message to the believers in Antioch. And here's here's what they told them. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. They said, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So we have Jewish believers in Jesus down in Jerusalem who are hearing this message that there are Gentiles up in the Mediterranean area who are being taught the gospel and not being required to be circumcised. And they said, hold on a second. If they're not circumcised, they can't be saved. So they make a 300 mile journey to go to these people who had heard the gospel and told them that unless they were circumcised, they could not be saved. Now in retrospect, It's easy for us to be hard on this group of people. It's easy for us to say, oh, they missed the point. But if we put ourselves in their sandals, we have to remember that they had 2,000 years of tradition and Bible verses to back it up. Okay, They had the verses we looked at earlier. They had verses in the Old Testament law talking about if you were not circumcised, you were cut off from a relationship with God. This is how they had always done things for 2,000 years. Of course they had to be circumcised to be saved. Haven't you read your Bible? This is what they're saying. And so if we think of it in, in that sense, what they were doing, they were actually, this was an act of love. If they really believed that salvation was at stake based on circumcision, then the 300-mile journey to tell them to be circumcised was an act of love. They wanted them to be saved. So I, just, I want to keep this in mind when we think about the, the, how deeply entrenched this tradition was in their minds. It's difficult for us with 20 years of tradition and no Bible verses to back it up to change the way that we've always done things. Imagine if we had a 2,000-year tradition with Bible verses to back it up. That's how central circumcision was to what it meant to be a part of the people of God for 2,000 years. Uh, So this this group of people travels from Jerusalem up to Antioch, telling the believers that if they want to be saved, they have to be circumcised. Luke tells us what happens next. He says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. 
Right? Paul and Barnabas had been preaching. They'd been doing all of this great ministry work. They'd been preaching the gospel. They'd been seeing uh, Gentiles come to faith in Jesus like they had never seen before. And now all of a sudden, this group from Jerusalem is, is sort of following behind them in their footsteps, sort of undermining their message. And so Paul and Barnabas are, are, are going to have a big fight with these believers from Jerusalem about whether or not circumcision is necessary for people to be saved. Uh, they says sharp dispute and debate. It was a big fight. So here's what happened. Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So Luke is uh, setting the stage here for perhaps one of the most important church business meetings in history. Right, all of the church leaders from around the area in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas are coming down. They're all going to gather in Jerusalem for this major business meeting about what we're supposed to do with circumcision. Here's what Luke tells us. He says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they had reported everything God had done through them. So Paul and Barnabas get down there. They're giving a report. Hey, we've been traveling through all of these cities up around the Mediterranean. We're seeing people come to faith in Christ. God is really at work in these different cities. We're seeing God transform hearts and lives and minds. Things are going really, really well. They're telling the story about how God had been at work. But then, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So these, these are Pharisees, but they're believing Pharisees. These are, these are Pharisees who have come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And Pharisees, they they were uh, intense students of the Bible. They had studied the Bible, which their Bible was our Old Testament. And they knew that in in their Bible, it said that if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to be in relationship with God, you had to be circumcised. And so they stand up and say this because they're concerned about people's salvation. And so this, this leads to this major discussion, this major business meeting in Jerusalem. So Luke tells us, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. All of, the, all of the people who had been entrusted with responsibility, all of the leaders, the apostles, the elders gathered, and they're trying to come up with what do we do, how do we answer this question, how are we supposed to move forward as a unified body? So Peter gets up, if you read the story in Acts chapter 15, I'm going to skip over some verses, but Peter gets up and he tells the story of uh, how God had sent him to the house of Cornelius and how the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Romans and on the centurion and their family and, and how that had happened before they were circumcised. And so Peter tells his story about how God seems to be working in a new way. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they talk about what God has been doing in their ministry out throughout the different cities uh, around the Mediterranean and how, how God is working in the lives of the Gentiles there. And so they're all telling these stories about how uh, this, this new way of doing things is reaching new people and they're coming to faith in Jesus in a new way. So after everybody sort of stands up uh, and gives their, their side of the story, their argument for how things ought to be done, we get a, uh, we get a, a response, we get a decision. Luke tells us, when they finished, James spoke up. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidebar here, because every time I talk about James, some of you have heard me talk about this before. James here is referring to the brother of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus. Now, what I want to point out is that James was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus was alive and walking around and preaching and teaching and healing and doing miracles, James was not a follower of Jesus. 
As a matter of fact, we read in the Gospel stories that uh, Jesus' earthly family, his mother and his brothers, actually thought Jesus was sort of crazy. James was not a follower... Get this, I'm... James was not a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry. And now, we fast forward just a few years, and James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What would it take to convince you that your brother was the Son of God? Probably nothing short of him rising from the dead. Right? I think the conversion of James is one of the best, some of the best evidence that we have that the resurrection is a historical reality. Because you know your brother. And what would it take to convince you that your brother was actually the Son of God? Nothing short of the resurrection from the dead. So we see James went from being an unbeliever during Jesus' life to now being the leader of the church. To me, this is, this is hard and fast proof that Jesus really was raised from the dead. So that's just a side note. We're going to look James as the leader of the church. He renders his decision. Here's what he says. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, which is another name for Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Then James says something really neat. He says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And he goes on to quote the Bible. He opens up his his scroll. Actually, he doesn't open it up. He doesn't have a cell phone with a Bible on it. He would have just had this memorized because uh, they didn't have smartphones and computers and search technology back then. They actually had to read their scrolls and and memorize them. So speaking from memory, speaking from um, the, the prophet Amos, chapter 9, here's what he quotes. He says, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. So Amos is talking about, he's prophesying that there's going to be, uh, this is way back in like the 8th century B.C., and he's talking about how, how the nation of Israel is going to come to, to ruin. It's going to come to collapse. That there's going to be judgment on Israel because of their disobedience to God. And, and so they're going to be, what we know happens is they were carried away into Babylon. They were removed from their area because they had been disobedient to God. And, and this had been prophesied by the prophets. But Amos says that's not going to be the end of the story for the people of God. After this period of exile, after this period of, of judgment and punishment, uh, God says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. David was their king. He was the one that they had looked to for for salvation, for deliverance, for leadership. And uh, he was the one that God had promised that someday later God would restore to them a king from the line of David. And, And this is what Amos is prophesying about back 800 years before Jesus. And this is what James is quoting now in his judgment here in this uh, business meeting. He's quoting Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So what James is doing is he's saying, we have this, this scripture, we have this prophet Amos who talks about someday in the future God is going to restore the kingdom of David. And when he does so, he's going to Make it so that the rest of mankind can seek the Lord. So what James is saying is is God's plan all along had always been to include more than just the Israelites. 
God's plan all along had always been, eventually, at some point, to reach out and include all of humankind in the the covenant relationship with God. So James is saying, what Amos prophesied about 800 years ago has finally come to pass in my big brother. Jesus is the fulfillment of the rebuilding of David's tent. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King who's come from the line of David. All of this. And so James says, it follows then, since God has rebuilt David's tent through my big brother Jesus, now it follows, Scripture says that the rest of mankind is now going to be able to enter into covenant relationship with God. Even the Gentiles. Now remember, if you were a good Jew back then, this idea would have... would have given you a little bit of heartburn to think that even the Gentiles could be included. right? But what James is saying is, is God's plan is now finally coming into fulfillment. And he goes to Scripture to point this out. And because of this, because James sees Scripture coming to fulfillment in Jesus, and now these Gentiles coming to faith, James, who's the leader of the church, makes an incredibly important decision. And I think when we read our Bibles, we've often skipped over this next verse, and it may be one of the most significant verses, excuse me, in the New Testament. Here's what James says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Folks, this is massive. This is a huge shift. Because for 2,000 years, Gentiles who wanted to turn to God had to go through all of the rituals of what it meant to be Jewish, including surgery, including dietary laws, including all these other things. And what James is saying is now that God's fulfillment is coming to pass, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And in one sentence, he overturns more than 2,000 years of religious tradition. And not just like minor religious tradition. 2,000 years of the most significant religious tradition that there ever was for the Jews. He's saying, I know that for 2,000 years, circumcision was a mark of being in a relationship with God, and you couldn't be in a relationship with God without being circumcised, but now that God's plan is coming to fulfillment, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Here's here's the translation of that. What James is saying is that God cares way more about helping people come to know Him than He does about any particular religious tradition. Okay, I really want this to sink in. God cares way, 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 way more. Way, 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 way more. Okay, about people coming to know Him than He does about any particular religious tradition. And what James is saying here about circumcision and everything else that goes along with that is that if it gets in the way of people actually coming to know God and enter into a relationship with Him, then get rid of it. Because we should not do anything that makes it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning 
to God. In other words, what James is saying here is tradition and ritual and preferences are all way less important than outsiders who are coming to have a new relationship with God. He's saying if there are religious traditions, if there are rituals, if there are ways of of doing uh, your beliefs that make it difficult for outsiders to, to fully embrace the message of Jesus, then get those things out of the way because they're all less important. He says the moment anything else becomes more important than helping outsiders come to understand who God is and what God has done for them, it's time to set those things aside and do things differently. Now, I want to add a caveat here. This is not anything goes, right? This is not get get rid of anything that might ever possibly offend anybody just so that you have a lot of butts in the seats in church. Right? This, this isn't compromising on the message of the gospel. This isn't compromising on the, on the demands of Jesus. What, what this is, is, is James is saying, get rid of anything that might offend so that the only stumbling block left is the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus itself. So whether it's circumcision, whether it's dietary laws, whether it's carpet color or a particular style of music, if it gets in the way of people coming to know God, get rid of it. Now, that doesn't mean we water down the actual message of Jesus. What it does is it means we get rid of anything else that might get in the way so that the the message of Jesus is the only thing that people have to decide on. One of my uh, favorite preachers talks about it this way. He says, we we, uh, avoid offending people on every level so that the only thing that causes offense is the gospel itself. Because the gospel itself is offensive. To declare that Jesus is Lord to declare that Jesus demands our allegiance and our lives and that we have to die to ourselves in order to follow him, that message is offensive, especially when we're used to running our own lives and being in charge of ourselves and and all of that. To, To submit ourselves to Jesus is something that's difficult to do in and of itself. So James is saying, don't make it any more difficult than it has to be. Don't let religious tradition, don't let ritual, don't let your preferences for how things are supposed to be done get in the way because the gospel itself is offensive enough and people coming to relationship with God is the most important thing. That's what James is saying here. So the question that I want to leave us with today is this. Do we care more about helping people come to know Him than we do about our particular religious traditions? Do we care more about helping people who don't know God come to know God than we do about our style of worship music? Do we care more about people outside coming to know God than we do about how we dress at church? Do we care more about people coming to know God than we do about the kind of carpet or the color of the walls or the the decorations that we have in the church or the particular version of the Bible that we read? Do we care more about people who don't know God coming to know God than we do about anything else? Here's one thing I can promise you. There's not one aspect of religious tradition that we have today that is more important to us than circumcision was to the Jews back when James rendered this decision. 
There's not one aspect of tradition that we have here that goes back 2,000 years with Bible verses to back it up. Every aspect of tradition that we sometimes fight about within uh, the, the church culture when we talk about reaching new people, none of those things is as deeply entrenched for us as circumcision was for the Jews. But they came to understand that the heart of God was about reaching people. The heart of God was not about how they did things. The heart of God was not about how they uh, worshipped or, or what their outward signs of, of ritual were. All of those things were subordinate to actually reaching people. This is what James tells us. I think if we really understood the significance of what James was saying here in his decision in overturning more than 2,000 years of tradition and Scripture for the sake of reaching people, we would be willing to write a blank check. We'd be willing to say, okay, God, whatever you want. Whatever you need. I I I know I like this style of music, God, but whatever it takes to reach people who are far from you. God, I know that I like this particular feel of church. It makes me feel good. But if that gets in the way of people coming to know God, then God, I'm willing to give it up. God, I believe that we should wear suits and ties to church on Sunday to give you our very best. But if that gets in the way of people coming to know God, I'm willing to give it up. So what I want us to ask ourselves and be really honest about in our hearts, in our minds this week and in the next couple of months is do we, do we actually care more about helping people come to know God than we do about our religious tradition? Do we really? Because we might say that we do. But then when it comes time to actually do the things necessary to make those changes and those adjustments... We don't follow through. We should not do anything to make it difficult on those who are turning to God. Are God's priorities our priorities? I know that some of the things that we, we, we talk about, some of the changes that we talk about seem difficult. I know that sometimes they are uncomfortable. I know that sometimes they are not what we prefer, but I promise you, none of them are as important to us as circumcision was to the Jews 2,000 years ago. And yet, the brother of Jesus who came to believe that his brother really had risen from the dead, appealing to the Scripture and God's eternal plan, says we should not do anything to make it difficult on those who are turning to God. So I want us to get honest in our hearts, in our minds, and I want us to say, okay, God, I'm not there yet, but help me get there. God, I I want to care about the things that you care about more than I care about my preference 
on the way that church should be done. Because until our heart breaks for those who don't know God, until our burning passion for those who don't know God becomes the sole basis by which we make our decisions as Christians and as churches, we're never going to have the kind of impact that we want to have. I can't say for certain, but I'm 99% sure that nobody sitting in this room is Jewish. I could be wrong, but most of us are not. Most of us come from Gentile backgrounds. And the reason that we are included in covenant relationship with God was because 2,000 years ago, a group of people was willing to set aside their deeply entrenched, biblically-based religious rituals and traditions for the sake of making the good news of God available to new groups of people. Are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to think about the next generation or the next five or ten generations in the way that we do things? Because what we know is that if we hold on to, if we hold on to traditions, if we care about traditions more than we care about people, eventually what we have, what we offer, is not going to be relevant to the people who need to hear it. You've heard me say this before. The message never changes. The message of the Lordship of Christ and His demand on our lives and His unfailing love for us, the message never changes. But the method always does. And unless we're willing to adapt our method to reach new groups of people, we won't be successful at the mission that God has called us to. Eventually, when Christ returns, we are going to be called to account for how we stewarded His mission. I, as the pastor of this church, am going to be called to account for how I stewarded the mission. And I can tell you the answer that's not going to go over very well. Well, we liked the way we were doing things. Well, we were uncomfortable with change. Because he's going to point at James and Peter, and Paul. He's going to say, you like the way you were doing things. They had 2,000 years of tradition and Bible verses to back it up. And they gave it all up for the sake of the mission. And because they did, you got to be a part of what God was doing. So I just want you to think about that. If Jesus were to, to come back and say, how did you steward the mission that I entrusted to you? Were you faithful to doing what I called you to do? Were you willing to take risks? Were you willing to go outside of your comfort zone for the sake of reaching those who are far from me? Or were you, like some of the ancient Jewish Christians, too caught up in your religious rituals to see what I was doing 
in your neighborhood, in your community, all around you. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. God cares way, 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 way more about reaching people who are far from Him than He does about our preferences or rituals or traditions. What do we need to do to align our priorities with God's priorities? We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Lord, I thank you that you have preserved these stories for us in Scripture. I thank you for raising up men and women in every generation who have taken your mission seriously. I thank you for men like James and Peter and Paul who were willing to give up everything that they thought they knew and understood about the way that you worked in the world for the sake of reaching the group of people that I would eventually come from. Lord, I, I, I recognize that I am here because there were people who were willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the mission. And Lord, I pray that you would start in my own heart, that you would make me willing to lay everything on the line, to give everything up for the sake of of accomplishing the mission that you've called us to. I pray that you would make your priorities my priorities. And I pray that you would do that for everyone who's sitting in this room, who's listening online, who, who, who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, that you would just once again remind us about what's most important. And that your priority, your mission has been from the beginning on reaching those who don't know you and helping them to experience your love and your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. And God, for some reason, you have, you have chosen to entrust us with the message. You've chosen to commit to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. I just pray that we would be, be faithful to what you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you would Help us to continue to, to move in that direction so that when, when, when you send your son, when, when we're all finally gathered together with you and you, and you look at us and, and you, we have to give an account for how we stored what you entrusted us, that you would say, well done, my good and faithful servants. So Father, whatever is getting in our way, I just pray that you would, you would ignite our hearts with a passion for the things that break yours. That you would help us to align our priorities with yours. That we would become a people characterized by an unfailing love and commitment for the people that you love. And that you would make us willing to do whatever it takes to help them experience that. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your grace displayed most prominently on sending your Son so that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, may we be a generation of people that doesn't do anything to get in the way of those who are coming 
to believe that good news. Father, we thank you and we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.